0: You're listening to the Sexual Wellness Sessions with Kate Moyle. Today's conversation was brought to you by This Works, makers of clean, targeted skincare and wellness solutions rooted in science and proven to work. I first worked with This Works in January 2020 on the launch of their Love Sleep range, developed to help mitigate the intrusion of technology in the bedroom and to help us reclaim the space for sleep and intimacy. We talked of the bedroom as a space of physical connection, relaxation and regeneration. But fast forward 18 months and our bedrooms have become our offices, home exercise studios, classrooms and a space that sees more screen scrolling than sex. You can reclaim your bedroom with the Love Sleep range, formulated with a 100% natural super blend of ylang ylang and patchouli to help you to switch off and turn on. After using the Love Sleep Pillow Spray, one in three users had more intimate moments. And you can find out more at thisworks.com. The topic of today's episode is something that we all have to deal with at times, something that is a big factor of life, and particularly, I think, a big factor of modern life, and that's stress. But we're going to take the discussion even further and talk about how sex and stress can intersect. Stress can impact sex lives and sex lives can both cause and relieve stress. So I think for me, at least in my psychosexual therapy practice, stress is pretty much in the room in relation to almost every conversation I'm having about sex. And there is one person that I so, so wanted to have this conversation with. And that person is my guest today, which is Emily Nagalski. I'm fangirling enormously, enormously hard. But she is the award-winning author of New York Times bestselling Come As You Are and the Come As You Are workbook and co-author with her sister Amelia of New York Times bestseller Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle. Come As You Are is one of the essential readings on almost all sexuality trainings and was one of the first books that I read when I was started training as a psychosexual therapist and I genuinely believe it is a game changer. Emily has a MS in counselling and a PhD in health behaviour both from Indiana University and with clinical and research training at the Kinsey Institute, the world-leading sexuality research centre and now she combines sex education and stress education to teach women to live with confidence and joy inside their bodies. Emily thank you so much for sharing your time with me today and I guess I wanted to start by saying do you think there really is a Bigger topic when it comes to our sexual well being than the impact of stress on sex and sex and stress. I mean, I feel like it's
1: such a massive relationship. And you know, it was actually a bit of a conversation. Uh, After I wrote the first draft of Come As You Are and sent it to my editor, there was a conversation about do we really need this chapter on like stress and emotion processing? Because this is a sex book, and this chapter is not about sex. And uh, my Sort of my whole point of Come As You Are is that the best predictor of a woman's sexual well-being is her overall well-being. Surprise. Mm. So like you have to help people deal with their stress and their feelings and their relationships and their relationship with their own bodies and their relationship with all the ideas they've ever been taught about sexuality if you want to help them improve their sex lives. Improving sex lives, almost none of that work happens actually in bed during sex. Mm -hmm. Nearly all of it happens out of bed.
0: A hundred percent. I literally could not agree with that more. And I think one of the biggest things I think that I at least see as a psychosexual therapist is that stress can just almost completely obliterate sex. It can... Um, means that someone doesn't enjoy sex it means that they might not sexually function that they might experience no pleasure that they might experience pain mm-hmm. that they might not be able to have sex that it can create panic attacks that someone might completely avoid sex for I mean all because of stress and I suppose what we see a lot is this clashing of sex being something that's meant to be fun and pleasurable enjoyable connecting and someone's experience of it is incredibly stressful and those two things just completely jar up against each other
1: yeah and how many of us has been told get over it it's just stress Mm -hmm.
0: and I know loads of clients of mine have said to me that they for example might have taken these conversations to medical Mm -hmm. professionals being told just to have a glass of wine and relax
1: oh my god the have a glass of wine what because that's going to, like, undo the disproportionate amount of, like, domestic labor that a woman has to do in a heterosexual relationship. It's going to undo the fact that she gets paid less for her work than her male colleagues. Having a glass of wine is going to fix that problem for her. It's going to put the dishes in the dishwasher. It's going to put the last load of laundry in the dryer. Good idea, glass of wine. That's definitely going to help with all the shit that women have going on in their lives. Thanks. <laughs>
0: Helpful. Well, I mean, for a start, hangovers are quite stressful, so I mean, it's not really (laughs) not really that helpful. (laughs) Um, But I guess you just hit the nail on the head there. Like, I mean, kicking off this conversation, we can't protect our sex lives from the other aspects of our health and vice vice versa, Mm -hmm. right? So, it's really interesting for me, and I guess this is something that you've written about so much is that we almost try and isolate sex as a completely separate entity and we treat it that way and then and are surprised when factors from the rest of our
1: life have an impact Mm -hmm. on us sexually. Yeah. And I think, so where this began for me was when I first learned about the dual control model, um, which is chapter two Mm. of both the workbook and Come As You Are. I learned about it when I was about 22 and the idea that there was a break. So just to begin at the beginning really quick, basic dual control model 101, the mechanism in your brain that makes sexual response happen is actually a dual control mechanism of uh, the sexual accelerator or gas pedal, which notices all the good reasons to be turned on every sensory experience as well as every thought or fantasy that you have that's related to sex. And it sends that turn on signal that many of us are familiar with. And it functions at a low level, including right now, just all the time, ticking away. And at the same time, in parallel, your break is noticing all the good reasons Mm -hmm. not to be turned on right now. And stress is among the most common things that hits the brakes because physiologically what stress is is a reaction to a threat there's a potential threat in the environment uh, and evolutionarily this threat is something like being chased by a lion and is being chased by a lion a good time to get laid (laughs) or should you maybe like have other priorities in that moment when you're feeling extra stressed out hmm it's very common for stress for sex to drop to the bottom of the priority list when you're feeling stressed, overwhelmed, and exhausted. And it makes good sense. Like, you're not broken when this happens. It is natural, normal, healthy for stress to hit your break, for your sexual interest Mm. and sexual pleasure to diminish. When you are stressed out, you are not broken. You're just stressed, overwhelmed, and exhausted. And if you can find Mm. ways to manage... The stress, overwhelm, and exhaustion to help your body to feel safe where it is, then you relax the brake and free up the accelerator to do what it wants to do.
0: Mm. I love, love, love that model. And I talk about it all the time. And I think, and as you said, you know, if there's a lion running towards you, and that understanding that, I think makes so much sense. When you just break it down like that and explain to people, and you're like, you know, this is your brain being like, oh, wow, I'm responding to a threat in my environment. Mm -hmm. Now, that we know is that kind of, um, that response isn't sophisticated enough to know whether that threat is actually physical or psychological or that we're kind of experiencing just as that blanket threat response. Right. And that that can completely change how we perceive everything that's happening around us.
1: And... I mean, you were talking about the ways that uh, sex can itself cause stress, like if we're not functioning mm. sexually the way we think we're supposed to or the way we used to, we begin to criticize ourselves and to feel judgmental of ourselves. And does beating yourself up because your sexuality isn't functioning the way you think it's supposed to, is, is that is that activating the accelerator <laughs> or, or is that maybe hitting the brakes some more? Mm. Right. So when things change in our sexual functioning, a really common response is to start criticizing yourself and wondering what's wrong with you and how do you fix the problem. And maybe even your partner is doing the same thing of wondering what's wrong with you. And like, so that's super sexy Mm. for your partner to be like, shouldn't you like try taking a pill? Did you talk to a doctor about the thing that's wrong with your sexuality? That's not a super sexy turn on. That's more stuff hitting the brakes. Mm. So the irony is that when sex itself is a stressor, the solution is to turn toward what your sexuality is right now with kindness and compassion and non-judgment, accepting and welcoming it for what it is right now, because your brain is doing its best under really difficult circumstances. Like, life in the 21st century is difficult in a lot of ways, not least because the 21st century is not at all the kind of world our brain evolved to cope with. Mm -hmm. So it is just trying to catch up all the time. And the kinder and more patient we can be with our brains and our bodies as they try to adapt to this life and this world, the more easily and pleasurefully they will function for us.
0: Mm. And I really love that you kind of talked about like contradictions there because I think there are so many contradictions when we talk Mm. about stress and sex. One being there being a kind of irony that lots of medications to manage stress, anxiety, depression, so for example SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, have an impact on sexual functioning or sexual arousal. So that's one of the main side effects that we see reported. And so someone might be trying to help themselves with their mental health, which may be having an impact on sex. And then actually one of the solutions, the medicated solution is something which hinders... That side of their life.
1: I think actually the medical community is doing SSRIs and people with depression a disservice when they use that kind of language. This is one of those things I, I don't talk about my own sex life very much but I have been on SSRIs and I experienced sexual side effects but of course the way I related to the sexual side effects of the SSRIs uh, was different because uh, this is my job. I approached it with a lot of mm. curiosity, like, so what is going on with my sexuality? Because mm. it's definitely different. The way I approach sex, my sort of like spontaneous desire is different. The way my body approaches orgasms is different. So the kind of stimulation uh, and the amount of time it takes for my body to get to orgasm is different. Mm. There's nothing about that that says it is worse there's nothing about that that says that the change is inherently problematic. No, it's just my brain chemistry is different in a way that means I'm not depressed and thinking about hurting myself. Yay! And it creates a change in my sexual functioning that if I can turn toward it with curiosity and communicate clearly with my partner, oh hey, it turns out uh, my clitoris seems to be a lot less sensitive and uh, my uterus seems to be a lot more sensitive, so let's try out some cervical stimulation and see what that does, because my brain wiring seems to be more into that these days. That change in framework from, like, you're going to have sexual side effects, you're going to notice delayed orgasm. No, you're going to experience changes in your sexual functioning that are uh another thing to notice mm. as a change. I mean, can you just write to, like, the World Health Organization and NICE and please put that in the guidelines? <laughs> I started out by having that conversation with my own psychiatrist when he prescribed it to me. I was like, "Let me help you out with this," because he's like, "He's like, do you think I, I'm do do you think I don't know about these things? This is the talk I have. My, he's a very nice guy. This is the conversation I have with all of my patients. I just want to make sure you have the information." And I was like, "So let me explain what it is that you're doing. You are teaching me to anticipate." my sexuality to be broken and to frame it as broken when all it is is different. Like if it takes me 50% longer to have an orgasm, if I just perceive that as like a difference that I now celebrate because like in order not to think about hurting myself all the time it takes me 50 percent longer to have an orgasm that's a fair trade Mm -hmm. but if I if I it takes me 50 percent longer to have an orgasm and I think oh this is the delayed orgasm that I was warned about then I start to criticize myself and judge myself and worry about the ways that I'm broken and it may even activate the depression networks in my brain that are like very well established that are the reason I had that prescription in the first place. Mm. And it like draws me down. And does all that stuff hit the accelerator? No, it just hits the brakes. So Mm. I have begun with my psychiatrist and we will see what we can do to help the rest of the medical establishment change the way they talk with their patients about the impact of different medications on sexual functioning. Mm.
0: Absolutely. I'm literally like just nodding along at a hundred miles an hour here. I'm like, yes, 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 yes. just such important points and you know I think what I've always hoped to do with these conversations is to offer people those kind of insights that they might not you know they might people not everyone wants to access therapy or can access therapy or likes therapy or has found a therapist that's a good fit for them or thinks it's right for them but I hope in a podcast that conversations like that or points like that that you've just made mean that people can access that without necessarily having to have a face-to-face sit-down with someone who can do that corrective messaging. Yes. And I think a lot of what I talk to people about is seeing things as a roadblock and then we work out how we create the diversion. And, you know, I've worked with people who have had injuries, Mm -hmm. which mean that they don't sexually function the same way. People who've had cancer, which means that they don't sexually function the same way. People who have... It's really, really severe, debilitating performance anxiety, Mm -hmm. people who've never had sexual experiences, people who don't want sexual experiences, Mm -hmm. people who have had sexual trauma. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. But examples of where we create or we co-create a new way of being sexual through psychosexual therapy for them. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And I suppose that's exactly what you're describing.
1: And one of the things I say so often that it makes people groan and roll their eyes, and honestly, I feel that way about it, too, is uh, if we can turn toward what's true right now with kindness and compassion. So is it okay if I swear? Of course it is. Um, So I say it so often that it's actually turned into turn toward your difficult feelings with kindness and motherfucking compassion. Because, like, oh, kindness and compassion. Um, one of the most important things I learned, actually, in the process of writing Burnout is uh, this self-compassion practice that, like, we're, we all hear about it all the time, right? Like, be really kind and gentle with yourself. And superficially, we're all like, Yes! Mm. yes i should not be myself up i should be so much kinder and more patient and more gentle with myself it turns out people with significant histories of trauma abuse or neglect when they begin to practice self-compassion it actually activates a stress response their brains receive it as a potential threat mm. that's so
0: interesting
1: so self-compassion is not the right first step for people with those significant histories of trauma neglect and abuse the people with the debilitating performance anxiety the people who are still in recovery from a traumatic injury might not be the right people to begin with self compassion but fortunately what the research has shown us is that if you can't begin with you if thinking about self compassion it just like it just bugs you out you just do not feel comfortable with it think about compassion for other people mm. And that builds a foundation in your brain to be able to access compassion for yourself. Mm.
0: And in therapy, we often talk about it or sometimes we do an exercise with like the empty chair, don't we? You know, we mm-hmm. put, you know, there's the empty chair and we say kind of like talk to someone else as if they're in that chair. Or, you know, sometimes I've actually like swapped chairs with my clients and I've been like, OK, you sit in my chair and I'll sit in your chair and let's see how differently the conversation that you're having with yourself might go if you address it to someone else. Mm -hmm. Or we say, like, think about if you were talking to a friend. Yeah. thinking about if you, you know, particularly if people look back on our critical of themselves at a younger age, we say, okay, but if you met Mm -hmm. an 18-year-old now, you wouldn't blame them for all that stuff. You wouldn't be that critical
1: of them. Yeah. You'd be empathetic. We wouldn't say the things we say to ourselves, we wouldn't say them to a stranger on a bus, Mm. much less a loved friend. Hmm. One of my uh, favorite styles of psychological intervention is internal family systems, which does a really similar thing of sort of recognizing the parts of you that are protecting you from being hurt because there are so many vulnerable parts of you that have been hurt in the past and so you develop these sort of protective mechanisms and you go and say hi mm. to the protective parts of yourself and you ask them what they're so freaked out about because they're very anxious or they're very angry or they're very depressed or they're very sure that you cannot do the thing that you are asking them to do and you listen to them with kindness and motherfucking compassion and even thank them for the hard work yeah. that this part of themselves is doing like If you have received significant sexual shaming messages as a child, and so now when you get into a sexual scenario, your brain just, like, locks down anything that's sex-related also activates shame, which is one of the best predictors of sexual pain in women in particular, Mm -hmm. right? You notice that that's happening. Go meet the part of you that absorbed those sexual shame messages. Find out what she's really afraid of. Um, What she wants and needs most, because chances are she's trying to keep you safe. Mm. She was taught her whole life that for you to put yourself in a sexual scenario is to put yourself in some kind of dangerous or dirty or disgusting. Shameful, risky. Situation, Mm. shameful situation where you're going to be excluded from the human family forever. So of course she's hitting the brakes. Of course she is. She's trying her best to keep you safe and make sure you're included in the human family. Mm. So go and have a chat with her about what she needs. And you'll probably find that under all the shame, there is something like a longing for connection or an intense loneliness or a craving for contact and pleasure that is the thing she has been tamping down for all these years, sometimes decades. Hmm. But we only get to that part if we can listen to the part of ourselves that is so afraid and so ashamed with kindness and hmm. our fucking <laughs> compassion, goddammit. <laughs> it's, it's that juxtaposition, isn't it? Of The thing that we
0: often want the most is the thing we're most scared of.
1: So uh, my sister is a COVID long hauler. Uh, which means she's experiencing really intense Mm. fatigue and joint pain. And both of us know, because we've read all the research, that one of the most important things a person can do when they're experiencing chronic pain or fatigue or other symptoms that are not related to an active health issue, but to the brain's hypersensitivity to Cues like related to pain and fatigue mm. is to turn toward the fatigue or the pain with kindness and compassion and thank it for its help, for its diligence, and let it know that, like, you're the grown up and you're going to do the thing. And when I talk to Amelia about this stuff, actually. Like, I was walking her through it, even though she knows these things we all need to be reminded, right? So I'm walking her through. So Mm. what do you do? You turn toward it with kindness and compassion, and you thank it. And she said, the hard thing is thanking a part of myself that feels like it's my enemy. Mm. How can you build that kind of relationship with a part of yourself that feels like it is trying to trap you?
0: Mm. There's such, and I love, I love the conversations that you guys have had on your podcast um, about stress and this kind of stuff. I've found it absolutely fascinating. Again, it's all those juxtapositions, isn't it? And I think that something I often talk to my clients about is we look for understanding the function of the dysfunction. Mm-hmm. And as you said, that function is often protective mm-hmm. and An example might be I'm working with a male client who is really struggling with either erections or ejaculation Mm -hmm. or both. And what it turns out actually is that him and his wife have had a series of miscarriages. And the fear and anxiety and the stress of potential pregnancy loss through potential conception, through penetrative sex is enormous, is crippling because of the fear the emotional impact, the disappointment. And it might seem obvious when we get to it, but to actually acknowledge it is enormous, plus the fact that it is shrouded in all of these assumptions and Mm normalising And the shame, A, the conversation around miscarriage being enormously not good enough not normalized enough not understood enough not conversational enough particularly
1: for the male partners Mm
0: -hmm. and then the male sexuality conversation Mm -hmm. about male sexual function the the um non-normalized um dysfunction or not functioning or I mean, the whole breadth of a massive conversation around male sexuality, which is not helpful.
1: The assumption that like a a penis should be just ready to go no matter what. If there is sex on offer, the penis should be erect Mm -hmm. as as if men don't have breaks, too, Mm. as if there's something unmanly about the grief and despair and frustration and. Loneliness that comes from pregnancy loss. Mm. When you are the partner of someone who loses a pregnancy and there's the extra complication of not being the partner uh, who is pregnant, but having to be the supportive partner to that person while you're managing your own grief Mm. Like there's so much going on. And when you're born in a body that makes everybody around you go, it's a boy. You get handed a user's manual, a script of what emotions are acceptable and what uh, methods of expression of those emotions are acceptable. And loneliness is not on the list. Mm. Grief, sadness is not on the list. Those are not things that men are allowed to experience, much less allowed to interfere with their erections. Mm. So there's this like complex educational process that I'm sure you see people go through all the time of recognizing all the different non-sexual aspects of their lives that are influencing their sexual functioning and then granting themselves permission to let it be true Mm -hmm. that their lives influence their sexual functioning and their sexual functioning influences their lives. Mm. Something that I think is
0: that the narratives that we have around sex don't help anyone <laughs> you know, particularly the very gendered ones
1: yeah the oh boy i mean
0: and that's not even diving into the lgbtqia plus right.
1: side of it you know that even if we just strict with the straight up i mean straight cisgender gender binary script mm-hmm. like even like just that screws up everybody like Mm -hmm. nobody's sexuality gets granted the space that it requires to blossom fully and then we take uh non-binary folks trans folks lgb folks um pansexual folks anybody who exists outside the cis hetero patriarchal standard and it's all just much noisier Mm -hmm. there is in a way The challenge of being non-binary, of being trans, of not being straight, forces a reckoning with the scripts that people are handed. Mm. Because you, in order to recognize your identity, you have to recognize that that script does not apply to you. And you have to decide that you matter more than the script. That is the script that's wrong and not you. Mm. And I think... Straight cisgender people have to catch up because they are not challenged as early in their lives Mm. about not conforming with the script and they feel very much like the script is supposed to be right. And the extent to which they differ from the script is the extent to which they are broken. It's Mm. not the script that's wrong. They're the ones who are wrong and they need to make their bodies conform. They need to make their arousal, their genitals conform with this script that is literally every single, everything any of us learned before the age of 18 about sex, all of it is wrong. 100% literally nothing that we learned was actually true. Mm.
0: And I think one of the, Big points about this um, is that sex should—a word that's banned in my therapy room—should
1: uh-huh. not be stressful, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. Again, like the sex educators, people like us, were like, "You stop shooting on yourself." <laughs> like we, tr- but like, what is the function of sex in our lives? What is the purpose of sex in our lives? I think they can have a lot of functions. Mm. And ultimately, what it comes down to is pleasure and connection. Mm -hmm. And if you are experiencing, so when I define normal sex, which people ask me to do all the time, because people want to know what's normal. Here are the only two criteria. Anybody involved has to be glad to be there and free to leave anytime they want to. That's just plain old consent. Mm -hmm. It has to be consenting. And second, no unwanted pain. Mm. And I mean no unwanted physical pain. If you love the feeling of being spanked or snipped with clothespins or pierced or whatever it is, stretched, great. And if you don't like that physical pain, then you deserve pain-free sex, sex that involves only sensations you enjoy. And that also includes emotional experiences. So if you feel, if your sexuality involves really enjoying being humiliated or ignored or um, treated with contempt, do you? Boo. Go for it. Mm-hmm. And if or, or having like high performance expectations and there's going to be punishment if you don't conform to those expectations. If that's what you love, great. And if you want a sexual connection where you are never humiliated and always treated uh, with full and equal respect, if you want a sexual connection where... There is no performance demand where you can just have the sexuality that you have right now in this moment and have it be accepted and welcomed and embraced just as it is. You deserve that. Yes. When I say pain-free, it's both physical pain and emotional pain. We all deserve sex that we actively enjoy, that isn't aversive, that we're not afraid of, that doesn't make us frustrated, that doesn't make us dislike ourselves. The best sex makes us feel like our best selves it makes us like and understand ourselves and any partner we might have even better than we do now i mean yeah, the i mean i have nothing to add <laughs> just you just put that so if anybody's looking for a book about that uh it just came out in 2020 Peggy Kleinplatz and Dana Maynard wrote a book called Magnificent Sex which is based on dozens of interviews they did with people who self-identified as having extraordinary sex so obviously the questions are what is extraordinary sex like Mm. Uh, and how do you get to be a person who has it surely that's what everyone wants (laughs) right Surely, except I mean, people want to be normal, but but do you really want to have normal sex, or do you want to have brain melting, life altering sex? Mm. Like normal sex is great if you are if that's what your sex life is like. Awesome. I compare it to um, like people who just like jog on a regular basis or they go to the gym and they work out and they're healthy and that's great. And then there are people who train for marathons, even Mm -hmm. if they never actually run it, like it is part of their identity. It is something they pursue seriously because it grants them access to a part of themselves that they want to explore and know better. Mm. And magnificent sex, extraordinary sex, optimal sexual experiences are the sex equivalent of training for a marathon. Mm. It's not for everybody, and nobody has to. It's an amazing hobby if it's right mm. for you. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't run a
0: marathon if I tried. <laughs> I yeah, struggle- me either. I struggled I, to run I have the no bus. motivation, right? Like, <laughs> I don't even want to. No, I, I, I just don't think it's even a possibility for me right. <laughs> um running something I find stressful there you go right. um <laughs> but something I um wanted to ask you about was in your podcast feminist survival project you talk about how solving actual stresses isn't enough right to deal with the stress in your body and how we have to complete the stress response cycle mm-hmm. and I would love us to delve into that a
1: bit. Oh, yes, please. I think it's something that we don't understand enough. Oh, I think especially as women, we are taught that if we can solve a problem, then everything is fine. We're fine now. Everything is fine. You fixed it. You're fine. Mm. And like we have lots of books about like time management and communication skills and maximizing productivity. And those are all strategies for dealing with the things in our lives that cause our stress But again, the stress response is this physiological reaction to help you deal with a stress like being chased by a lion. And the behaviors that help you deal with a lion have nothing to do with the behaviors that help you manage your time and your productivity and your communication skills with other people and technology and the capital T, capital F future. So it turns out now because of this shift that has happened evolutionarily, the behaviors that deal with our stressors have nothing to do with the behaviors that deal with the stress itself, the stress in our bodies. And we can, this is good news and bad news, because on the one hand, the good news is we don't have to wait for our stressors to be solved before we can begin to feel better. And the bad news is that just because you've dealt with your stressor, doesn't mean your stress is dealt with. The way to deal with the stress is to complete the stress response cycle. Now, I know this is different language and a different way of thinking about it. In the same way that doctors tell women to just have a glass of wine, we get told to just relax. (laughs) Yeah. Just (laughs) relax. Great. Thanks a lot. Just relax. Easy. The way to get from a stress response to a relaxation response is actually through the stress response. You have to complete the stress response cycle. This is easy to think about in terms of other basic bodily functions like eating. Amelia does not love it when I use uh, digestion analogies. but (laughs) So, like, the digestive system has a clear beginning, middle, and end, right? Yep. And you know you have to go all the way through it to get to or or else not so great things can happen.
0: Yep, very true.
1: And actually, like the rest activity cycle is similar. We're not designed to be awake 24 hours a day. We're not designed to be asleep 24 hours a day. We're designed to move through the cycle to oscillate into sleep and then back into activity and back into sleep and back into activity, right? Mm, Circadian rhythm. Yeah, it's built into our bodies. And we are designed to go all the way through the stress response cycle. We're not designed to stay in a state of like peace and calm and balance all the time. We are not all supposed to be like gently smiling, beautiful Gwyneth Paltrow's all the time. We can have moments of smiling, peaceful Gwyneth Paltrow in our lives. And then we're going to have the other moments where we're the other thing. We're the opposite of that. That's that's life. We're supposed Hmm. to go into a stress response, cope with difficulties and challenges and then oscillate back into peace and rest and relaxation and the ways to get through to like help your stress digestion move through it are to do the things that your body recognizes as behaviors that indicate that your body is now a safe place for you to be, that you have come home. In the same way that when you run away from a lion, you run home, mm. right? So so home is home is soothing? Home is safety. Mm. So when you're being chased by a lion, what do you do? You run. When you are stressed out by traffic and kids and money and family and the capital T, capital F future, what do you do? You run or dance it out in your living room or you go to the gym once you can go to the gym because the pandemic is not yet over. Or you... Mm. Just lie in bed and you tense every single muscle in your body hard, hard, hard for a slow count of 10. And you keep tensing your muscles until your muscles are like, please stop tensing us. And you just keep a little longer and then you flop and let every single muscle relax. Just that amount of physical activity is enough to use your muscles in a way that communicates to your body. Look, I have found my way home. I am safe now. Mm. In the same way, the uh, second most efficient strategy for completing the stress response cycle besides physical activity. So the way this looks in real life is suppose you get home from a difficult, exhausting, challenging commute because one day we will have commutes again. (laughs) And you, like, you get home and you've dealt with the stressor because you got home. But does that mean you suddenly feel relaxed and peaceful and joyful? No, you still feel frustrated and, like, your shoulders are trying to be your earrings. So you go for a walk around the block or you do jumping jacks in the driveway. Just just a little, yes. you just shake it yeah. out. You, like, bop around listening to music in the car. Anything to move your body, to let it know I used my body, I made my way to a place of safety.
0: The shake it off bit is something that I do quite a lot. And if I have a... Yeah, it's real. If I feel really tense or I know I'm going from um, one meeting into another Mm -hmm. or I've got like a window of time or I've... Had a stressful phone call, or I've been running, you know, late on the school run, or whatever it is, and I freaking feel my body is just a bit jittery. I actually do that physical, like shake it off, and almost like um, someone once described it to me as a bit like you're trying to shake the energy like out of your body and out through your fingers. Yes. And I like, jump up and down and do that, and it does just feel really good. Yeah. It feels like an energy release, and then you just feel. I suppose more comfortable, relaxed is probably is, is the word.
1: Yeah. Your chemistry changes out of the stress response into the relaxation response. That is the feeling of completing the stress response mm. cycle. Now, let me add that you and I, it sounds like our kind of natural exercisers. We had that experience. Even if you're kind of like, oh, I just don't even feel like putting on my shoes. I don't want to do the thing. But like you go ahead and you do like, I don't want to look like such a weirdo doing this stuff, but you do the thing and you're like, oh, feels feel so much better. Mm. Um, not everyone is a natural exerciser. My sister, my identical twin sister, has never had that experience and thought I was making it up <laughs> when I said that she that I had had that experience. Uh, she is not a natural exerciser. Some people cannot exercise because of chronic pain or disability. Some people, mm. like if you're trans and go to a gym and you want to go into a locker room, you could literally be taking your safety into your own hands by participating in what for other people is just normal behavior um so it's not equally Mm -hmm. accessible to everyone fortunately there are i mean if you read the first chapter of burnout i think a dozen evidence-based strategies for completing the stress response cycle but if we could only talk about one other one it would be connection which is the place where it overlaps in this slightly ironic way with sexuality right yes So um, one of the recommendations, I actually learned this from a sex therapist in New York City named Suzanne Iacenza, is the 20-second hug. It is not about the 20 seconds. It is what she calls hugging until relaxed. So you put your arms around your partner – And they put their arms around you and you just hold each other and breathe until you feel that same sort of shift in your chemistry. That's your body recognizing I have come home. There is someone I love and trust enough to hold this close to my body for this long. It's potentially awkward, right? Like you've got to really like and trust somebody to hug them
0: that long. I suppose, as you said, it's that connection. I think it's even more important and we're all guilty of it. And you know, I find myself guilty of it a lot, even as someone who talks about this every day and helps other people with this is we're so guilty of just like grabbing our keys running out the door being like, bye, see you later. Love you. Bye. Right. Yeah. Yeah, love you, bye. Tiny little peck. I'll talk to you later. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like kind of coming in the door and being like, oh, well, let's get the dinner on. I've got to send that email. I've got to do all the things I was thinking about. And we just kind of kind of miss each other a lot of the time. And I think yes. there's that, um, you know, like ships in the night. Right. Whereas if you take
1: a deliberate moment to pause and turn toward each other with kindness and fucking compassion, mm. it creates that it's... It's a physiological shift. It is a bond that happens when you take just a little. John Gottman uh, recommends uh, the six-second kiss. It's long enough to be a significant event, but not so long you make the kids late for school. Yeah. Um, And again, it's not about the six seconds. It's about uh, (laughs) holding your body that close intentionally, deliberately, creating a moment for your body to recognize that there's someone in your life that you love and trust enough to have this level of physical intimacy with them. Mm, absolutely.
0: And do you think, or in your research or from your work, that some people are more susceptible to stress oh, yeah. than others? Or, you know, I'm, I'm interested in, like, what you were saying, you know, having an identical twin sister and how you have such different traits and are so different. we are very different. Are, obviously, some people might have had experiences which as we were talking about earlier have changed things you know is it nurture is it genetics do we know what it is that makes some people more stressed or more
1: susceptible to stress or more um unable to f- complete the stress response cycle? right and anytime the question is nature or nurture the answer is yes it is Specifically, the interaction of the two. So there are individual differences in temperament Mm. that seem to be in place from birth. They do research on infant temperament. So what are the reliable differences that begin at birth and are stable across the lifespan? I tend to lean toward the Thomas and Chess. Originally, they uh, had a framework of uh, the difficult temperament. (laughs) Um, because, uh, so some of the variables are sensitivity. So this is literally the amount of stimulation that it takes for an infant to react sensitivity. And a more sensitive infant is going to be, uh, Sort of higher maintenance than a lower sensitivity infant. Uh, High persistence. How long will an infant continue uh, to cry before it stops crying? How long will a child continue to work on a task before it gives up, before it has a fit? Um, Mm. Persistence sensitivity. Uh, How many details and extraneous things, how distractible is an infant Uh, And how intense is the emotional temperament of an infant? It turns out this is literally like how much neurochemical is transferred from one neuron to the next in a human brain. And it seems to be that there are some people whose emotional reactions at the neurochemical level are more intense. I learned about this because I'm one of those people, as you may be able to tell. Uh, and when I found out about it, it was so normalizing. No, Emily, your your brain just reacts in a way that is different from the way other people's brains react. Mm. And that's, that's just true. And this is all on top of life experience so you may be familiar with the uh dandelions and orchids framework no so this is looking specifically at the interaction between infant temperament and life history so dandelions are the kids who have um a relatively easy temperament where it sort of is less impactful what their life history is they're going to be basically okay no matter what And then there are the orchids who have this like highly sensitive person style and highly sensitive person research is a big category. There are lots of books that are written about it. People can find out all about it. Um, But if you have this sort of temperament and you have a great, stable, loving, supportive, emotionally intelligent family of origin, these folks thrive like nobody else. But if that orchid, mm. highly sensitive person temperament has a wrong context? traumatizing or neglectful or abusive family of origin, they do worse than anybody else. Mm. So there's absolutely an interaction between basic temperament, like your personality traits, and the kind of life that you have lived. Mm.
0: It's so, in- I- I'm absolutely going to steal that as an analogy is so effective when you think about it. And I think we'll never be able to completely untangle everything either, will we? And I say this to my clients all the time, when I want to help them understand what's going on and I want to understand what's going on, yeah. we look at everything. We don't just look for like the obvious answer, which is A plus B equals C. There might be 10 A's, mm-hmm. 17 B's, and then that's C. And But we look at all those little factors and what are going on because there's all this stuff kind of intersecting right and I guess themes that we we see in our work Mm -hmm. something that I see and I guess this ties into whether it's you know nature nurture both exactly as you were saying kind of temperament I often see people who describe themselves as people pleasers Uh and that they struggle with sex and that's that's a self-labelled um you know that's a, a label that people often describe themselves by but they're like yep, we talk about it and how they're almost overly conscious of their partner's experience of sex, overly conscious of themselves in sex, mm-hmm. overly conscious of their body in sex, overly conscious of
1: if they feel they are... Meeting other people's needs, spending so much time. Exactly. Yeah.
0: And that stress response as a result of, you know, that like performance anxiety, that stress response is massive. And, you know, the irony, as we were talking about earlier, uh-huh. is that that then causes the sexual problems that they're most afraid of. Yep but that those traits that can be so apparent in the rest of our life can also almost be um, have the volume turned up on them when it comes to sex. And that can be incredibly stressful. Yeah, absolutely
1: magnified. Yeah. And uh, in the same way that people vary in these other temperamental traits, people vary in the sensitivity of their brakes and accelerator. Most of us just like most of us are dandelions, most of us are sort of like in the middle with a sort of like typical sensitivity of brakes and accelerator. But for some people, their brake is very sensitive. And those are the folks who struggle the most with sexual dysfunction. Some people's uh, accelerators are very sensitive. And those are folks who may be more likely to experience hypersexuality, sexual compulsivity, out of control sexual behavior. Some people have uh, very not sensitive accelerators. And those folks are actually more likely to identify as asexual. It takes an enormous amount of sex-related stimuli to get their sexual accelerator on board. People vary tremendously. And it looks like a lot of that is stable across the lifespan. Mm. And I think that understanding that, and it
0: is a model that, you know, anyone can Google and will come up with, and Emily, as you said, it's a, a massive feature of your book, but I think it can help us to understand ourselves so much more.
1: Right, just beginning to think, okay, so what activates my accelerator? What hits my brakes? Especially when you're a people pleaser. First of all, you gotta overcome the feeling of uh, selfishness to dare to spend time thinking about your own sexual pleasure Mm. and move in the direction of exploring the possibility that pleasure might be your birthright as i say at the good vibrations sex toy stores that maybe you your pleasure matters just as much as your partner's does hmm. and that's a scary idea in the same way that people cry when they do the 22nd hug which by the way crying is another evidence based strategy for completing the stress response cycle People can cry when they begin to acknowledge that there are things that activate their accelerator and that hit their brakes because they acknowledge that they have a sexuality that matters and is worth attending to. Hmm. If they have a partner that values their sexual pleasure and they dare to take on the challenge of prioritizing their own sexual pleasure as much as their partner values their sexual pleasure... It can change their relationship, not just with their partner, but with their own sexuality.
0: Mm,
1: Absolutely. Completely. It can be transformative. Which is super scary at first.
0: (laughs) But it's totally worth it. Mm. And I think that's one of the ironies, isn't it, with um, this stuff is our natural anxiety response or fear response or threat response a lot of the time is avoidance and actually the thing yeah. we need to do is approach.
1: Yeah. When people struggle with approach, it is a perfectly reasonable alternative to just try standing still mm. and allowing whatever's happening to happen to notice your urge to run. To get out, to stop paying attention to the thing that's so uncomfortable. You notice that and you challenge yourself to stay with it just, just a little while longer. Mm-hmm. To notice, to stay still through what's uncomfortable and ask yourself, can I stay with this just a, just, just, just a little bit more and see what happens? Because the amazing thing that happens is that when an uncomfortable feeling starts, it ends Mm -hmm. It just – my sister had this experience literally in therapy with her therapist of having a panic attack in therapy and, like, talking about all the things that were happening in her body. And she takes a breath to keep describing things. And her therapist asks, and how do you feel now? And it was just gone. Mm -hmm. Because that's the beauty of this whole cycle aspect of living in a mammalian body. The whole oscillation through feelings or tunnels. You have to go all the way through the darkness To get to the light at the end, every time an uncomfortable feeling starts, Mm. it will definitely come to an end. Yeah. If you can simply stay still and allow it to move through you. Mm. And I think um, I talk about it a lot as um,
0: growing or developing like tolerance for the discomfort. And so that's why so much of what The exercises and things that I do with people are about baby steps, like, you know, we increase our tolerance bit by bit by bit by bit um, rather than trying to make, like, big jumps.
1: When I was first reading about this research, uh, having grown up in a difficult family of origin, uh, I was like, no, feelings are not tunnels. I'm pretty sure feelings are caves full of bats and darkness and a river of cyanide. And if I go in there, I am never coming out. I will be trapped in the dark forever. Um, And so, yeah, I had to start with like little small kinds of emotions, noticing this is why we start with our breath, right? Mm -hmm. Because it is the gentle, benign place to start. If you can notice your breath neutrally, you can build from that ground to noticing even the most difficult riptide emotions and allowing them to move through you without being afraid. Difficult feelings themselves are not dangerous. It is our fear reactions to them, our anxiety about them that causes us to engage in behaviors that um, can result in unwanted consequences.
0: Mm, Yeah, absolutely. And you have just brought me perfectly on to the point that I guess I wanted to close this conversation on. and I I feel like I could just pick your brain for hours and hours. Um, How has
1: it been an hour? Oh my gosh.
0: (laughs) But obviously we can't, completely protect ourselves from stress in our lives so how do you think or what advice would you give to people for managing stress healthily I mean I guess completing the stress cycle is going to be one thing but I think I would love the takeaways you know what
1: it actually is bigger than that Because, yes, read chapter one of Burnout. Listen to the early episodes of the Feminist Survival Project where we outline evidence-based strategies for completing the stress response cycle. Some of them are going to be new. Some of them will be familiar. You'd be like, oh, I listened to a podcast about how sleep is good for me. No shit, Sherlock. But because we know, we know physical activity is good for us. We know sleep is good for us. Like we know green vegetables are good for us, right? The question is, how do we get access to those things? Um, Because the point when you're burnt out, overwhelmed, exhausted is you don't have enough left to take care of anyone, and that includes yourself. So the cure for burnout cannot be self-care. It has to be all of us caring for each other. If you are overwhelmed and exhausted and you tell the people you share a household with that you really need to get eight hours of sleep tonight, uh, then they help. By saying, right, we're going to cordon off space and time to make sure you get the rest you need, that you're not the person who's woken up in the middle of the night if somebody needs something. You get help. Whenever you feel like you need more grit, what you need is more help. And when you feel like you need more discipline, what you need is more kindness. And at the same time, when you feel like somebody else just needs more grit, what they need is more help. Mm. And when somebody else, you look at somebody else and think they need more persistence. What they actually need is just more kindness. So the cure for burnout has to be the ways that we help each other gain access to the behaviors and the resources that complete our stress response cycles. We need each other to help us do it. I mean, what an end to this conversation.
0: And I guess it leads back to one of the points that we started on, which is connection. Right. Emily, I mean, I just cannot thank you enough for this conversation. I have been so excited to have it and it has gone beyond every expectation I had. And I would love to point people in the direction of all of your amazing resources, all of your amazing work. So you have got the books, the Come As You Are workbook, Come As You Are, Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle, the podcast podcast. Anything else that you would love to direct people to or that you think is a a must-go to for people interested in?
1: It's not me, but I really recommend that people follow the NAP ministry. The NAP bishop is Trisha Hersey. She's an American minister. She's a genuine minister, went to Divinity School, who uh, creates public napping installations for Black people in America as a commentary on and action against the history of labor stolen from the bodies of Black people, it reframes this whole idea of rest. And it's not just self-care. It's all of us caring for each other in this very profound way that for a white lady like me is really important in the way that I approach my work. But I think for everybody enriches the idea that the way we make the world a better place is by promoting and celebrating everyone's rest and joy and pleasure.
0: I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Sexual Wellness Sessions. If you'd like to join us for more conversations, you can click subscribe on either Apple or Spotify podcasts. And if you have a moment, please leave us a review.